0: If you wanna look with me Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. We're gonna begin in verse eighteen and read all the way all the way through the end of the chapter. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Father, we ask your blessings on your word. This can be a difficult passage, though we won't get through all of it today. It can be disturbing at times. This passage has been made to say all kinds of things rather than what it plainly says. So I pray that you'd help us um, to discern just the plain meaning of this text. Encourage our hearts, those of us who are believers, those who are not, I pray that they would hear the message of the gospel, but also the message of the wrath of God that they will be consumed by apart from the grace that is in Christ, and that you'll give them faith to believe in him. We trust you to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about the righteousness of God that has been revealed beginning and ending with faith. The just shall live by faith. Now that was a fun passage to preach. The last two have been kind of encouraging and fun. But the good news that the righteousness or the justice that God gives to man is revealed in the fact that he came down from heaven and took on flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we talked about that in great detail. The second person of the Trinity, he came down not to make himself appealing to man, but to make us acceptable in his sight that we might stand in his presence. And now as we read this passage, I hope we can see why that was necessary. Because not only does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God toward those who believe, but it also reveals the wrath of God toward those who do not. We said in verses 16 and 17, we find the thesis for the entire book of Romans. Really, the thesis for all of Paul's theology He announces the gospel of God's righteousness in verse 16. He exegetes it or delineates or describes and defines it in verse 17, what it really is. And then pretty much he spends the remainder of this book showing how the truths of those two verses work themselves out in the world and in the lives of people and humanity. And so after explaining this righteousness of God, which has been revealed through Christ, he explains why that matters so much. Why the righteousness of God toward man has to begin with faith and end with faith. Why we must be given this righteousness or it has to be imputed or counted toward us and why it cannot be earned. He explains why it has to be by grace. It has to be what we refer to as monergistic, meaning there's only one power involved. It's the power of God. There's not a synergistic together work between us and God when we are saved. There's not a little bit of us and a little bit of God mixed in to bring us to faith. And there's not even a little bit of us and a lot of God involved. It is all of God and God alone. And so Paul says the just shall live by faith because the only thing the works of men can produce is the wrath of God, right? That's what this passage clearly explains. The righteous shall live by faith. Why? Because the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So the only thing that men bring into this world is ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's what what we have to offer. So why is salvation not a mixture of us and God? Because God is grace and holiness and perfection and righteousness and purity, and we're all the opposite of that. We have nothing to add but what somebody said, the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing we have to add to the gospel, the only thing we bring to the table. So in other words, what the Bible is telling us here is that men and women and boys and girls, they all sin by nature and by choice. Don't don't forget this. That which is in mankind comes out of him. We call this and refer to it as the doctrine of depravity. I'm sure you've heard that word before. Maybe you've sat and listened to or read about it. But by depravity, what we mean is that man has been brought forth, as the Bible says... We were conceived in sin, brought forth in sin, and the wicked go estranged from the womb. I mean, that's who we are, all of us. I want you to listen as I read what this doctrine really is from our confession. There's a little bit here, so bear with me, but listen closely. It couldn't be. I couldn't explain it any better than this. God created humanity upright and perfect in the garden. We could agree with that. Perfect, just meaning whole, complete, without any sin right? He was, you could say, neutral. He was good. He had the, he had the ability without any inside um, persuasion to choose to obey God or disobey him. And it goes on in our confession to say, and God gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened to death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. And Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by the, by eating the forbidden fruit. So not only did they not have an inside, um, an inside compulsion, but they didn't even have any exterior. At least Adam didn't. Eve was at least tempted. Adam wasn't even tempted. And he still succumbed. But it goes on to say, God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act of fall of sin because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. Now that's a great, wonderful truth, though it's a mysterious one. By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we fell in them. This is the doctrine of original sin. Not the first sin, but because Adam sinned, he is our federal head. He represents us. His sins passed on to us, right? And that's important because that's the only way righteousness is passed on to us through Christ, because he's our spiritual head, right? And so we fell in Adam, and through this death came upon all of us, all became dead in sin. And completely defiled in all capabilities and parts of soul and body. But by God's appointment, Adam was the root and representative of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin, Adam and Eve was accounted, and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants are now conceived in sin, brought forth in sin, and by nature the children of wrath. The servants of sin, the partakers of death, and all misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. Now, that's another good little phrase put in there. This is true of all of us unless you're set free by Jesus. All actual transgressions arrive from this first corruption, but we are thoroughly biased. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good, and we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. Now, what that is basically saying is we have no ability to awaken ourselves from spiritual death and become alive. It's not saying you can't do a nice thing. Somebody drops their fork, you pick it up and say, here, wipe it off, that's a nice thing. That doesn't affect your salvation standing, okay? What it says is we can't do anything good. The only thing we can do is evil when it comes to um, our righteousness toward God. We can't do anything because we're dead. During this life, it goes on to say this corruption will remain even in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet this corruption of nature and all its ar- all actions arising from it are truly and actually sin. I just want you to see that a lot of times people have a hard time with the doctrine of depravity. They un—they—they they say it's unjust. What they mean is it's not fair. But what the Bible teaches us and what our confession um. Explains so well is what I said earlier in this simple statement. We are sinners by nature and by choice. What's in us comes out. So those who are condemned and the wrath of God fall upon, it's not because of the fall of Adam. It's because of the fall of Adam and the sin that they committed. Does that make sense? So the doctrine of depravity is not that we're as bad as we can be outwardly, Or that some of of us somehow managed to sin every sin that's possible. Or that God is somehow grading on a curve. Now, some sin is not that bad, but this is really bad. No, the doctrine of depravity is that sin and the fall has affected every bit of us as humans. We are depraved in heart, mind, and actions, as our confession said. And we cannot recover ourselves. I've already mentioned this, but... Ephesians 2 is one place where the Bible says in fact that spiritually speaking we are dead. You go back even in the Old Testament and see Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. That's us spiritually. We have as much chance of doing something for God to save us as those bones had to be put back together by themselves and walking as they did once the Spirit of God was breathed into them. There's no life in us spiritually as humans. And not only this, but because the sin of Adam is passed on to us, the Bible says, again, that we are conceived in sin, brought forth in sin, making us unrighteous, but also in our unrighteousness, the Bible says here in Romans 1, we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. In other words, we have unrighteousness in us. We are born into it. We suppress the truth of what we know to be right and good, and the sin comes out of us. So again, we are sinners by nature and by choice. So don't ever listen to people and say, well, what you believe about God and sin means God just punishes people for no reason. It's Adam's fault. No, he passed it on to us, but we're the ones that do the sinning. And we do plenty of it. But he goes on to say here what he means by this suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We refer to this as natural revelation. Everything we see, creation, everything in humanity, the amazing wonder that is the human body and brain, all these things, the Bible says God in all his eternal power has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, Adam and Eve had the same thing. They could look around and see, no doubt, God made all this. There is a God. Men today and women today, everybody can look around and perceive that something has created this. So Paul says man is without excuse because God has revealed himself in the natural world. And what has man done with that natural revelation? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There's that depravity. The the, the evidence of God is all around, but what do men in their natural state do? They think futilely. They become darkened. They claim to be wise, but they are really fools. Think about that. You see and perceive creation and what does man come up with in his heart in his foolishness, theories of evolution. Ideas that infants in a womb are not human. That genders are not what they obviously are. All these things that are clearly seen, even when we read in the text, clearly seen how a gift from God like sex is to be used. They destroy that too. In their feudal minds, in their darkened hearts, they mess it up and refuse to worship God and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I hope you heard that as as, um, Jeremy was reading from Isaiah 44. He described that pretty well, didn't he? Look how foolish this is. They cut a stick up and burn it And then they worship the fire or they worship the sticks or they make something with their hands and they They're so foolish that they worship how foolish it is They Give up immortality To worship mortality I thought about you know That's all the theory of evolution is all the evidence that there is a creator, but what do you do? You don't come up with something better and brighter you decide, you know what, there were these things and they, made, they bunged together and they made everything. You've exchanged the immortal for the mortal. All you've done is taken things that God made and said those things that he made made everything. And that's basically what Isaiah was saying. You're picking up stuff that God's created and you're worshiping the mortal things rather than the immortal God. That is foolishness. And not only that, But it is worship. Make no mistake that mankind's theories are God's. They are set up as places and things of worship. Men worship their theories and their institutions. Men go to great depths to deny the God of creation, but all they do in the process is to try and create something lesser to worship. And it's always lesser. Humanity is made in the image of God, therefore made to worship. And as has been well documented, our hearts are idol factories and we make something to worship. And in reality, we fail to worship the one true God who has given us the way to worship properly. And what we end up doing is worshiping ourselves. All false worship, really, when it's boiled down to it, is a worship of self. You figure out a way to do what you want to do, how you want to do it, what you decide God is and what he's like and what you decide is good and bad. And you're ultimately, no matter what you're worshiping other than God, you're worshiping yourself. I may have told you one time I listened um, or read about uh, a satanic worship cult. And somebody asked him, well, how do you worship Satan. And the guy says, oh, it's easy. We just sit around and worship ourselves and Satan shows up. So even satanic worship is just a worship of self. Any false worship is a worship of self. So we read that worshiping ourselves here and humanity worshiping themselves is simply humanity acting out and living out their depravity. That sinful nature. And then verse 24 says, so God gave them up. Men are without excuse that there is a God who has made himself known. And the Bible even says here, and they know it, but they suppress the truth. So they are without excuse. God does not make men The way they are, they choose to be the way they are. But be warned because the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And for some people, he gives them up to that. Three times in those verses, did you hear it? We are told that for some people, God gave them up to what they desire. More literally, he gave them over. In other words, this is what they wanted, so he gave them over to it. Now, this is one of those places I think it might be important just to stop real quickly and explain the error in what is called double predestination. A lot of times people say, well, you believe in that predestination election, so you believe there are people that God created and predestined for hell. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we all are born and brought forth in sin. We are all ungodly and unrighteous. God doesn't have to make people hate him. God doesn't have to make people not want him. But for some people, he gives them over to just what they want. He gives them what they want. I've heard a lot of preachers say something to try to motivate people to... um, missions or to motivate people to witness and they'll say there's going to be all these people in hell they're going to be one of those. why you didn't tell them they're just sitting there what they would have, they would have believed but you didn't tell them and i just don't think that's biblical i think people in hell get what they wanted and for all eternity they will hate god and they never will want him if they did want him they would get him years ago there was a there was a pastor in in the Atlanta area. Who said it like this, all you people, all you Calvinists, you you treat the gospel like there's this great big bus out there It's going to heaven. But you won't let some people on it. And that's so ridiculous for so many reasons. But it's not even true. You preach the gospel and whoever believes gets on it. Whoever believes follows Christ. Those who don't are given over to what they want. They're without excuse. And I read this week on a thread, some Facebook group that I'm in, and there was somebody struggling with this truth. Well, this whole idea of the sin of Adam being passed on to us, one, either God is not just, or two, how can I be held accountable for what I didn't even bring about? I I got it from somebody else. And interestingly enough, if you just read ahead to Romans 9, Paul answers that question with his hypothetical men. Some of you say, well, why God hold us accountable then? He's talking about Jacob and Esau. Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. And he talks about Pharaoh, I hardened his heart to do what he did. And then it says, so the Lord hardens who he wants to, and he shows mercy to who he wants to. And then Paul says, but some of you will say, well, then why should I be held accountable if it's not even my fault? And you know how that goes. Who are you, old man, to question God? Does the clay say to the potter, why have you made me the way I am? Our trouble sometimes is that we mix up justice with fairness. And we live in such a culture that everything's supposed to be fair. And again, we've made a God separate from the scriptures that's not the Bible God, and we make him into the image that we like And He's just a super version of us. If I was God, I wouldn't charge people with the sin of Adam. I would make it fair. Everybody's got a free choice and you decide or don't decide. But I think if Paul was here, he would say to that thinking, who are you to question God? This is what God has revealed. This is who God says he is. This is how this has happened. And the good news is he didn't just leave us with natural revelation. He has given us the gospel of God's righteousness and said, here, let me tell you more about this God who has made everything. He also sent his son to die for you, to take your place, to forgive your sin. So you have, you do have a choice, the wrath of God or the righteousness of God. But this idea of double predestination is really not biblical and we don't believe that we don't teach it god has mercy on whom he will and he hardens whom he will and that's a god's prerogative and that's difficult but again we try to make things fair instead to the just god is just and i don't think we really understand justice but i know this the bible says that the just or the righteous will live by faith so if I fail, I'm going to fail just believing in Christ, knowing that he's the only thing that can save me, the only person I have no hope to save myself. But I want, to, I want you to notice this as we start to close this. In the next few verses after this, I find it very interesting, and I'm going to devote the next, I, I plan on devoting the next lesson to, to this part solely. I'm not going to say a lot about it today. But I find it interesting that idolatry is so closely related in this passage to sexual sin. Verses 24 and 26. Three times in 24, 26, and 28, God has given them over, given them up. One, he's given them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So their hearts were impure, and they were lusting after impurity, so God gave them over to it. They had dishonorable passions, he gave them over to it. They have debased minds to do what ought to not be done. And so he gives them up to it. That word debased, um, to give you an idea, in the NIV, is, is translated as depraved. He gives them up to their depravity. I think these verses are clearly tied to sexual sin and idolatry for a reason, because again, um, Sexual sin, the Bible says, is committed against our bodies, and it does something different to us. It affects us in a different way than any other sin. I think that's what the Bible teaches. And pretty much the Bible gives sexual sin three categories. And and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think we could take the Bible and prove these. I know we can. There's fornication, which is sex outside of marriage. There's adultery, which is sexual... Uh, impurity within marriage breaking the marriage covenant and then what is mentioned here very clearly there's homosexuality and people have tried and we'll talk about this more people have tried to make Romans chapter 1 mean all kind of things oh this is just talking about um, unfaithfulness in homosexual relationships not just homosexual relationships in general or this is talking about homosexual relationships as it relates to idolatry but Uh, any other way it's fine but you'd have to be a fool and not capable of any discernment to read what we just read and think of anything other than what it clearly says as one preacher said one time about another subject if you opened the newspaper this week and read that passage would there be any doubt in your mind what they were talking about no way it clearly means what it says but I want you to be cautious that anytime people are trying to convince you that God is okay with either of these or anytime people are living in such a way as to think that these things are okay and especially that neither of these or either one of them is not sinful then you are thinking and acting like those who God has given over to a debased mind and to evil passions and to lust and impurity into things that ought not to be done. So I believe it's proper to say in essence to promote sexual sinfulness as though God is okay with it, to go along with it, or to be silent on it, or to deny it as being sinful is to practice idolatry. Because there again we've removed God from his authority and we've put a new authority in the place of it. And so to practice sexual sin, especially the kind that's being clearly talked about in verse 27, is is to not see fit to acknowledge God. You are denying clearly what God has done, clearly what is against nature. You are revealing that nature is backwards. And most importantly, these are the things against which the wrath of God has been revealed. But notice, and the reason I'm not going to spend that much time there today, it's not only sexual sins that the wrath of God is coming against. God has given depraved humans over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And again, debased just means not being used as it should be or depraved. Or even it means in some places translated reprobate, which is simply unbeliever. So there are some things that if this is your the tenor of your life, you're acting or living as though you are not only depraved, but a reprobate and unbeliever. And look at verses twenty nine through thirty-one. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, which is hate and full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Now we might get by all those, but then he starts saying gossips and slanderers, haters of God, we might be okay with that one. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And I don't know why he put this one in there. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Knowing that if you practice these things, you deserve to die. Not only do you practice them, you approve the others who practice them. So I think it is important at the onset to say, this chapter is not only about sexual sin, There's quite a list here of what it means to be debased and depraved. And there's somewhere that all of us fall into one of those categories. So can anybody say, thank the Lord for grace? Amen. And there's another place, and we'll talk about this, where Paul uses this category again, and even these sexual sins again. But he makes this statement, and such were some of you, but now you've been washed cleansed so I also want to say this there's no sin in any of this chapter that's not forgivable by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross so we don't want to be so harsh toward one thing to act like it's the unpardonable sin but go easy on others so we'll talk about that a little more but we just want to be careful to see the good news of the gospel against the backdrop of the wrath of God. The good news is not good until you see why it was bad to start with. This is why you don't start out by telling people something like, God loves you and has a plan for your life. you start out with who God is and the fall of man and what that has done to you and how it has affected you and how you will never be able to get up out of it. You can't raise yourself from the dead. But the Father will bring you to His Son and the Spirit of God will arrest you and awaken you and regenerate you to believe the things of the Word and the Gospel. And He will save you forever and ever. And even though some of these things are who we were and sometimes who we are, our hope is in Christ and His righteousness and His works, not ours, right? Right? Yes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We can't leave out the wrath of God whenever we talk about the love and the mercy and the grace of God. Because this reality needs not escape us. That there is a place called hell and there is a wrath of God that not only abides on people now, but one day will be revealed in its completeness and there'll be those who will suffer for all eternity underneath the wrath of God and so that should motivate us not in the way some people have used it but it just reminds us that wow look at what people are apart from Christ they have to have Christ we have to tell them about Christ there's no other hope for them apart from Christ but in him there's the greatest hope and in him, there's a great salvation that overcome any sin. And we praise you for that. And we ask that you would help us to remember that and preach that, tell people about it when we have the opportunity. And we know that you'll save your people by it because this is the power of God and the salvation. And We thank you for it. In Jesus we pray. Amen.